Good morning. It was my senior year in high school, um, varsity football practice leading up to the state semifinals. So it was late in the year in Wisconsin, which also means it was very cold for practice. And in our minds, all we had was, let's get out on the field, let's go through the drills, and let's get back inside because it is cold. I was playing tight end in high school. It's a position that includes a lot of blocking, but from time to time you'd run a route. And if you're really lucky as a tight end, you'd get a pass thrown your way. Um, At this one play during practice, I remember it really vividly. I'll never forget it. I was supposed to run a a post route. And I was almost finished with my post route. Of course, I didn't get the ball. I don't know why they didn't throw me the ball so much. They should have done that more. And coach blows the play dead before the quarterback can even get the ball out of his hands. And he comes up to me with this growl and fire in his eyes, steam coming out of his ears, and he says, Lightning! That's a post route! That's not supposed to be run at 7 yards. That's not supposed to be run at 8 yards. That's a 10-yard post route. You're screwing up the whole play. What do you think? This is your team. You can do whatever you want. And for the next, it felt like half an hour... (laughs) He let me have it. That big six foot three tight end felt like a tiny peanut in front of the rest of the team, including the underclassmen that were brought up at the end of the season to watch. It was a show, classic Coach Taylor style. At the end of practice, I was taking my cleats off, cleaning them off, and Coach comes up to me and he says this. He says, Lightning, you know I wouldn't have done that to just anybody. In fact, some players might have done that. I wouldn't have said a word, but you're better than that, and I care about you. Was I angry at coach for the next week? Yeah, you bet. (laughs) Looking back a year, four years, ten years now, over ten years, am I angry at him? No. I know that I have a friend that cares about me. We're going through the series called Friendship, and each week we're looking at a different aspect of friendship, and today's word is candor. Candor is the quality of openness and honesty in your relationship, and it's going to look different (laughs) between a coach and his boys than it will between you and a friend, but for a friendship to have real meaning and real depth and real love in it, it needs to have candor too. It needs to have honesty and openness and a carefulness with one another about where, where your friend is going and what you as a friend will say about it. Does the Bible have anything to say about candor? Well, yeah, actually it does. In Proverbs, uh, the Proverbs speak about candor this way. In, in Proverbs 27, it says, Open rebuke is better than secret love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Well, what's this all about? Uh, Hebrew poetry is, is a poetry that doesn't so much rely on words that rhyme with one another to, to, to be beautiful in poetry, but thoughts that line up with each other between verses, parallel thoughts that line up with each other. And here you see a couple of parallel thoughts. Open rebuke is better than secret love. Faithful are the, friends, are the wounds of a friend. So the thought is the first half of verse 5 and the first half of verse 6 line up. Wounds of a friend. What are, what are friendly wounds? Well, friendly wounds are a metaphor for words that are spoken to you or words that are spoken from a friend to a friend that need to be spoken, but words that are going to hurt. They're words that are, that are going to hurt. They're friendly wounds, but they're words that need to be said 
from a friend to a friend. And then the, the second half of the thought is, that's better than secret love, and that's better than kisses of an enemy that are deceitful. What's secret love? Secret love is a metaphor for this. Well, I love them too much to tell them. I love her too much to tell her that her personality is putting people off. Or I love him too much to tell him that his collar is sticking up and I'd hate to embarrass him. Secret love. Now, is, is that sort of a love for a friend or what is that? Actually, the proverb says what? That kind of a love isn't love at all. It's not a friendship at all. It's actually a deceitful kiss. It's actually what Judas did to Jesus, a betrayal of that friend when you don't speak the truth and love to them, when you don't help them and have open candor with them. And what is it actually? Kind of, what, actually, what it's saying is it's not so much that you love them, but what are you saying in that kind of a situation? You're saying, I don't want to have this conversation because it's going to be too painful for me. It's going to be too uncomfortable for me that I'm going to have to go through with this conversation. It could cost me a relationship with this person. And so it's actually a lot more self indicting than it is helpful to a friend. And later on in Proverbs, uh, it says this in 29.5, whoever flatters his neighbor is spreading nets for his feet. In other words, um, in other words if, if, if you're just a yes person to your friend all the time, you're giving them a distorted view of themselves. You're not helping them see, and they're going to make decisions down the road that are going to be harmful to themselves because you're not a friend that can help them out and be honest and candid with them about the way that their life is going. And by the way, the more rich and the more influential that you become, the more likely it is that you have friends that are spreading nets at your feet. So it's time for you to get some real friends. Enter your best friend, Jesus of Nazareth. When he came to this world, he didn't just have candor to people that were his own peers or below him. But the amazing thing is, is even the influential people, the people that had his life in their hands, he could approach with candor. And he does it time and again. And, and maybe you read these accounts in the scriptures when he approaches the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious elite, and you come away thinking, wow, these guys must have been enemies, like Jesus was really going at them there. <laughs> but the truth is, is that Jesus is actually caring for them. When he approaches people and he opens up their hearts and he helps them realize where their life is and what's missing in their life. And sometimes it sounds like a coach speaking to his boy after practice. But you know all along that he loves them and that he cares for them and he wants better for them. That's where we get into the story for today. It's Matthew chapter 16 starting at verse 1. It says, The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Okay, who are the Pharisees and Sadducees? Uh, and why are they coming to Jesus? What's the relationship here? Well, in, in Matthew, throughout the book of Matthew, you see an ongoing relationship between this religious sect, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, two different religious groups that would come and interact with Jesus. Um, earlier in chapter 15, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask him, this is just to give you a little history and background, they ask him, why don't you uh, do the ceremonial hand washing that all of the elders prescribe, all of our church fathers, they tell us we've got to do the ceremonial hand washing to, to be clean before we eat. Why don't you and your disciples do that? And Jesus comes back in classic style where he would come back to them 
and talk about what was really important. And he says this, he quotes Isaiah 29, 13, and he says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their, te- their teachings are but rules taught by men. And what he's saying there is getting to the heart of this conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. Whereas the Pharisees were a religious group that said, you need to be clean, you need to do right, you need to, to not do this, and you need to do that, and you need to do that hand-washing, outward things. Jesus came in and he said, it's not so much about the rules, but it's about the heart that God is concerned. You can wash your hands until your skin falls off with ceremonial cleanings, but God doesn't care. He's looking at the heart because he says in this account in 15, it's from the heart that the mouth speaks. It's from the heart that we have volition. It's from the heart that we do what we do, the outward actions. And God is concerned with that inward reform. The Pharisees are going to have their world rocked by this because their whole life they were brought up and they lived in this culture where it was outward acts that made you righteous. And so when they had Jesus come to them and shake up their whole worldview, they became offended. And there were generally two reactions that I found that Pharisees would have to Jesus when he would begin to teach about inward reform. Number one, you'd have the Pharisees who were skeptical, but they were still questioning for a good, in a good way, like Nicodemus. A Pharisee who recognized that Jesus was shaking up their worldview, but he wanted to learn more. And he was open to the teachings of Jesus because he couldn't deny that what Jesus was saying was true. And then you had Pharisees in general that were skeptical but aggressive, right? The Pharisees that would come to Jesus like here in chapter 16, who paired up with another religious sect called the Sadducees who themselves had a beef with Jesus because Jesus was raising people from the dead and the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Pharisees and Sadducees who were normally at odds with each other find themselves as strained bedfellows. They want to take Jesus down. Both of their worldviews are being rocked. And so they come to him and they ask him what? Show us a sign. Show us a miracle. Make a car float. Do something. (laughs) Do something crazy to show us that you're from God because, frankly, we don't want to believe it. They ask for a sign and they come to him to test him, it says. And the testing isn't a test to, to find truth. The testing, in this sense, the word means to attempt to entrap a person through a process of inquiry like a a prosecutor who's cross-examining a witness on the stand. He's not really interested in getting to the truth, but he's fishing for answers. And so he has a deliberate questions that he asks that might get that witness to slip up. This is the kind of trap that's being set for Jesus. And Jesus knows their hearts and their intents. He replied, When evening comes, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you can't interpret the signs of the times. Candor is stating the obvious when the obvious goes unnoticed. When Jesus says what he says about the weather, he's saying this. It's a popular proverb today, too. It's been used, I think, over the last 2,000 years or more. It's, it's, it's the proverb that says, red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky at morning, sailors take warning. You know how to interpret the weather so well. Why can't you interpret what's happening right underneath your nose? Or haven't you spoken 
to the over 4,000 men, women, and children that were hungry last week that I fed with seven loaves of bread, a few fish. Did you talk to them? Or did you, here are my disciples, here are my followers, how many basketfuls did they pick up afterwards? Ask them. Or talk to that Canaanite woman yesterday that came to me asking for crumbs from the table. Her daughter was demon-possessed. Her house was thrown into chaos 24-7, screaming and cutting and bleeding and terrible scenes of a daughter destroying herself. Have you visited their home now? Do you see that mother braiding her daughter's hair? Talking about school or going to the lake. Do you see the peace that I'm bringing? The peace that I've ushered in right here underneath your nose. You know when the weather's going to be bad and the weather's good, but don't you see? I am he. I'm the one who's arrived. The sad part about reading the signs of the times is that Jesus is pointing and putting his finger right on their unbelief. They saw, they heard, but their hearts still didn't want to believe. And so he calls them a wicked and adulterous generation. He says that. Verse 4, A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. (laughs) There he goes. Talk about candor. The word wicked means worthless, degenerate. Adulterous, of course, means one that cheats on your spouse. But when he refers to a whole generation, he's talking more than just a physical cheating on your spouse. He's talking about this. He's talking about a whole generation that has removed themselves from God like a, like, a, like a bride that cheats on her faithful husband. Like in Malachi, when God talks about divorce and about how his people have divorced themselves from him, that whole generation, by following other gods, by putting their own interests first. And here he speaks with candidness to the Pharisees who have built their whole worldview around what? What they do. The idol of self-worship. And he's speaking to the Sadducees who have a secular worldview that nothing possibly uh, supernatural could happen, especially like a resurrection. And he's speaking to them about the idol of their ideologies. Unbelief includes preserving my interests at the cost of God. And he speaks to us. Are you more interested in people-pleasing? Maybe self-interest of preserving yourself, and so you're not going to talk about Jesus around Uncle Floyd because Uncle Floyd doesn't like when people talk about Jesus? Are you more interested in spouse-pleasing? <laughs> she doesn't like what happened at church five years ago or what that person said to her at church five years ago or the music or the style or, or something there. And so I'm not going <laughs> to be on her side. I'm going to take her side. I'm not going to go to church there. Are you more interested in the fun, the fishing, the work, the busyness? And so you're going to start to distance yourselves from the relationships 
that revolve around faith because you know that tilling the garden of faith takes a lot of work. And frankly, you're not up for it anymore. There's good news for the the candidness um, that you're hearing this morning. It's because Jesus hung in there with these Pharisees and these Sadducees too. And in a strange way, he did give them a sign. What did he say? There will be no sign for this generation except what? The sign of Jonah. (laughs) What is this sign of Jonah all about? Well, if you go earlier in Matthew, you find out that Jesus has had a very similar interaction with these Pharisees. When they ask for a sign, he says the same thing. But he, he expands it, and he says this, Matthew twelve forty. He says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What did the Pharisees and the Sadducees want more than anything else? It wasn't a sign. Trust me, it wasn't. They wanted Jesus destroyed. They wanted him eliminated and pushed away. And what did they get? Exactly what they asked for. And here's the amazing thing and the grace that he's showing them. Even through their own schemes to put him on trial and to put him in front of Pilate and to put him on a cross, the whole time they believe they're pulling the strings, he is taking them on the route of a miracle that he wants to save them with. And so when he says that the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, he's saying, I will give you a sign, this will be the sign to you, that I'm going to go to the cross And after three days, I'm going to rise again. And that's what he did for them. The people that that persecuted him, the people that put him on the cross, he died for them. And he rose for them. So that when he would come to Nicodemus, a Pharisee himself, uh, one that was offended that his worldview was being shaken up, he would come to him and he would say this, I'm coming to you, and you're so offended by inward change, but guess what? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I'm taking care of the inward change for you. I'm doing it for you. I'm the one bringing you life. Don't be afraid of the inward change. And to the Sadducees, he gave this wonderful day of Pentecost when Peter would stand up and on his life defend the resurrection of Jesus in front of them all, along with 500 witnesses and more that said that he was truly alive and he was truly alive for those Sadducees that denied the resurrection so that they could have eternal life too. How does this change you? That death for your sins, that resurrection that gives you life is yours. And so you know you have a friend in Jesus. And because you know that he's your friend, you can believe every word that he says and you can take every word that he says to heart. Candor. Jesus' love forgives you. Now let his candor change you and your relationships, your tone and your relationships with others. When Jesus says, I love you enough to tell you that you're living in sin, he's coming to you with care. And he's coming to you not to ask you to fix your life up, but he's coming to you with his cross saying, I've forgiven you of everything. Now come and follow me. And that tone that he gets you into your life with will, will, will come out and needs to come out into your relationships and your tone with friends as well. How can you be a friend to the friend who's living in sin without first taking them to the cross, 
telling them how much their Savior has been faithful to them as a husband, so faithful that he laid his life down for them. And then, with candor, and I mean careful candor and love, talk to them about Jesus' desire for the commitment of marriage. How can you be a friend to that self-centered woman in your life? Unless you've first gone through that cross, and then you can tell her that there's a Savior that died for her, that the heart of her and her identity and everything is revolving around this Savior that's lived for her, died for her, loved her, that's looked out for her first, and then with careful candor, talk to her about putting the needs of others first because that's what God has created her to be and do. How can you be a friend to that young man who, like the Sadducees, probably was brought up in schools and in, and in thought and in books that was just completely worldview from the origin of the earth to its meaning to its future? How can you be a friend to that person unless you first take him to the cross and show him a love that no science book can ever explain, but it's real? Show him from the scriptures about how much Jesus' resurrection means to him because he has a life that doesn't just end at this end of this dreary world, but that goes on into eternity. How can you be a friend to that person by showing them Jesus first and then candidly talking to them about Jesus' purpose for this world, his creation, and the heavens and earths that go on forever? Jesus created you for candor. He created you to be forgiven, and he created you to speak the truth and love to those people in your life. So go now and be that friend to your neighbor. Amen.